Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, you two, and welcome back to the show. It is How to Eat an Elephant, and we are all sitting in pools of our own sweat. Gross. <laughs> because as I believe I mentioned on our last episode, that it was going to, I think I said something like, it's going to be hotter than the face of the sun in Spokane, Washington. And now we are in the middle of, we are in the middle of that heat. It hasn't been this hot in Spokane, Washington since 2015. I actually saw a stat yesterday that I don't know if it's more correct or not, but it claimed that it reached, uh, it hasn't reached this height since 1964. And then it tipped the scales and went one degree higher, which is the hottest it's been since 1881. Oh my goodness. So it's record-breaking high. Unbelievably hot for the Pacific Northwest. And all you Southerners, I can hear you now and find it's a dry heat. Sure. <laughs> I actually all saw. I'm saying is, all I'm saying <laughs> is, I woke up this morning and I walked out of my bedroom where I have a teeny tiny, the very smallest AC unit that I could find because I have a tiny window. And it's relatively cool in my bedroom. And I walked out of my bedroom and looked at the thermostat in the rest of my house. And it is 87 inside my house so regardless of whether or not it's humid that's too hot for people did you see that meme that said at least it's a dry heat and it was two skeletons in the desert yep yes (laughs) dry heat can still kill you anyways we're gonna do our best to rally and to pay attention and to enjoy the time we get to spend with each other and with you in tolstoy's russia it's actually appropriate it's summer in russia at this particular moment, the summer of 1812. And we're going to get some vignettes from our favorite characters. Megan, how stands it with Natasha here in this section? Oh, she's so great. So Natasha is, well, we kind of get the tail end of her illness and then her recovery process, not only emotionally and spiritually from her situation with Prince Andre, but also physically. She starts out quite ill, We get a little vignette from Tolstoy on doctors in general that I think is going to be super fun to tackle with you guys. And then we move towards her recovery process, mostly having to do with her friendship with Pierre. Okay, so give me a give me a brief snapshot of how Tolstoy would connect Natasha's physical illness and her emotional well-being. When you say she is quite ill, what precisely do we mean? We mean that she's in low spirits and she kind of hates herself. And as Uh a result, she's listless and fatigued and generally lacks spirit Okay. because she doesn't like herself after the situation with Andre. There is a a note of cynicism or I think cynicism is too strong. A note of of wryness in Tolstoy's tone when he talks about her illness because she enjoys the attention despite the fact that the illness is real. She enjoys the attention as much as she does the prospect of getting well. Yeah, I picked up on the wryness as well. Emily, what about you? 
What's your impression of this description of Natasha's illness? Um, well, I also, I noticed at the end that he seems to be suggesting that it's more of a moral illness than anything else, which we can talk about in a second. But yeah, it's an interesting mix. She's both enjoying the intention and also it's the fact that she's ill and the medicines aren't making her better are also allowing her to stay in this cycle of self-hatred, which she enjoys because she wants to feel bad about herself after what she did. Right. I just found the line. Um, even Natasha herself, who said that no medicine could cure her and that it was all stupid, even she was glad to see that so many sacrifices were being made for her and that she had to take medicine at certain times. And she was even glad that by neglecting what had been prescribed, she could show that she did not believe in the treatment and did not value her life. Yeah, I, I think I would actually use the word cynicism. And I understand your impulse to soften it because we're always talking about Tolstoy being gentle with his characters. And he may come around again, and I think he even does in this section, to being gentle with Natasha. But he sure isn't in this chapter. I think it's pretty aggressive. I mean, he come, basically comes along and says, Natasha is bummed out. Right. Having <laughs> yeah. had a picture of, of herself as less than pure and less than perfect. And... Being bummed out, she succumbs to an attack of the vapors and then her entire family promptly forgetting about the cause of this illness, right? which is her act and the break with her fiance. They forget about that and they take pleasure themselves in making her and her illness the focus of their own lives because, Tolstoy suggests to us, they can posture at being useful. They can all act in relationship to Natasha in ways that are pleasing to them so as to make statements about their own character and their own concerns. And I'd like to suggest that as sort of a rubric for how we move through the rest of this section, because that's what everyone is doing. And the topics change subtly. We get topics like science and medicine with Natasha's illness. We get topics like romance with Pierre. We get topics like the sovereign and the state of the nation when we start talking about the military and Petya. We get topics like faith again, in connection to the war and how we think about it and pray about it. In, in all of these contexts, Tolstoy is basically saying what human beings do here is look at the situation and use it to reflect on themselves and use it to posture about themselves so that they can seem a particular way to everybody else, regardless of the truth of what's actually happening. And so I think the fact that he starts with Natasha shouldn't um, constitute any special vitriol towards her. And so I, I think you're right to say wry in that sense. But the cynicism he's applying towards human activity in the face of all of these things is super stark to me, at least. What do you guys think about that? I love that. I think it echoed the situation with Pierre. Pierre's sort of coming of age. I don't know that he's done with that yet. But at the beginning, he, uh, when he first finds the Masons, he goes through a process, if you guys remember, of self-loathing and a desire to improve himself and a resolve to be better in every way. And then he's going to have some kind of, you know, it, this kind of crumbles. And he eventually backslides in his behavior and is looking for a deeper reason to live other than self-improvement. We see that anyway at this stage in his, in his progress. And I don't know that he's done with his journey yet, but I saw it repeating with Natasha that she's, she's seen herself, she's horrified. And when she goes to the church in a couple of chapters, she's trying to find a new way to validate her self-image and her identity. And maybe we're supposed to be tender, tender with her as a specific character, but to see her also as some kind of type of humanity 
this is what humanity does in various categories to try and maintain a sense of control or usefulness or identity, etc. That's really good. I like that. Emily, are we being too harsh? No, but I also see another conversation taking place at the same time, which is a continuation of Tolstoy's discussion of causes. And while I tend to be on board with his project of tearing down all of humanity's ways of trying to justify itself, which apart from, I was going to say apart from the church, but here the church becomes the the project, which that'll be fun to talk about. But I, I like that project on the one hand. And on the other hand, when it comes to his causes, he seems to be saying, uh, you can't justify yourself because you are not in control of the way that things are going down. There, there, there's some kind of, there's, there's a multiplicity of causes. There's an abundance that makes it impossible to control the situation. And I tend to be uh, agreeable to that one too, but I do think he takes it too far here in the first <laughs> chapter, in chapter 16, when he applies it to the medical profession. Okay, get, yeah, d- take me yeah, through that. Yeah, get specific here, because I think I know what you're saying, that there's a, he's he's consistent. He talks about multiplicity of causes in history, and he applies it here in his uh, iterations of the medical field as well. Yeah, he's nothing if not consistent. He wants to apply his philosophy to all areas, and here he says, The simple thought never occurred to any of them, the doctors, that they could not know the illness Natasha was suffering from, as no illness that afflicts a living human being can be known. For each human being has his peculiarities and always has his own peculiar complex illness unknown to medical science, not an illness of the lungs, the liver, the skin, the heart, the nerves, and so on recorded in medicine, but an illness consisting in one of the countless combinations of afflictions of these organs. So basically he's saying... No two illnesses are the same. Therefore, we can never correctly diagnose and treat an illness. And while I think Tolstoy is a brilliant mind and a brilliant philosopher and historian and literary artist, I'm kind of thinking he should stay out of the field of medicine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I, might be nonsense. He even goes on one, one sentence further. The simple thought did not occur to the doctors, just as it cannot occur to a sorcerer that he cannot do sorcery. I mean, for goodness gracious sake. I mean, he has a kind of a point, I guess. But if you applied this practically to the medical profession, we'd all be doomed. <laughs> yeah. Well, here this is something I'm starting to think about because we venerate Tolstoy, and rightly so, as a literary artist and an observer of human nature. Um, but I actually do think he's kind of a cynic. Um, it's been really consistent. Sometimes he's a little heavy-handed and overstates some things. That's actually consonant with what we've learned about some of his later writings. And I wonder if that might not be one of the things that we need to toss into the bag of understanding who our author is. Um, and it might be that it's a self-image that we're seeing. It might be that he looks at himself and he says, there I go again doing that thing. That must be how all people are. Mm-hmm. And so when he looks at the doctors, his evaluation of them is they are doing this because it makes them feel useful, not because it's effective. And then he looks at the people who pray in the church and he says, they are doing this because of the way it makes them feel, not because it's effective. Then he looks at people who join the military and says, they are doing this because of the way that makes them feel, not because it's effective and so on. That's a, well, it's a very particular worldview. Which I think he, to some degree, is aware of. Because if I had to guess, I would say that Pierre is a type of Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. 
And he looks around the world. There was that section we read where it said that he couldn't participate in any of the things going around him in life because he saw the evil in all of it and it disgusted him. Right. And so basically he isn't doing anything because everything is touched by evil. And I see Tolstoy doing that himself when he looks around at the world and writes about it. And yet also maybe doubling back and saying, oh, Lord, if you do not save me from this, I am right. I am doomed i hope you're right about that i choose to think that that is correct that's a better that's a better reading than mine <laughs> but i th- i think it's conflicted and i think i don't know how aware he is of that process as it's happening yeah i think it's it is relatable though as cynical as he as his tone is um when he says they all do this this uh validation of themselves this search for usefulness out of an eternal human need for the hope of relief and I think that that resonates. There is something about being a human being that requires hope for relief. And we look yeah. for it in all the places. The you need know? for compassion and action, which a human being experiences in a time of suffering. He even gets, it's that whole, the rest of that paragraph that you just quoted from is really interesting to me. And it does soften things a little bit. Because doesn't he reference, he identifies it all as almost like a nostalgic immaturity. He, he relates it to children in the end. We do this in a childlike way, in a, in a hopeful childlike way. Well, and he even relates it to real faith in a sense. He says, the child does not believe that those who are stronger and wiser than he have no means to help his pain. And the, the implication is both, even though we know they can't, <laughs> right? But then also, this is part of what humanity is doing in relationship to God. We do not instinctively on a fundamental level believe that God has no ability to help our pain. This is why we pray. Well, yeah. And if we look at this discussion of medicine from a philosophical angle, instead of, you know, being realist and practical about implementing it into Western medicine, he does have a point. If you take his, his premise all the way to its conclusion, the premise being all things are in the hands of providence. There's nothing that we can do to change Mm -hmm. what providence has ordained. Then yeah, all medical treatments are, of nothing if providence does not ordain that they will be useful. And so they're kind of a band-aid. So he ends the section because we have a lot to cover today. He (laughs) ends the section by saying, despite the large quantity of pills, drops, and powders she had swallowed, despite the absence of her accustomed country life, youth had its way. Natasha's grief began to be covered over by the impressions of ongoing life. It ceased to weigh with such tormenting pain on her heart. It began to become the past. And Natasha started to recover physically. So one gets a sense we're done with the physical illness discussion and on to the next one, which unless I miss my evaluation has to do with her emotional spiritual state and with this, the same discussion we just had about medicine applied to religion. I turned to Megan first last time. So Emily, you get to swing first on this one. How did this discussion settle with you? And is it similar to the previous one or unlike? I think this one might be a little more nuanced. Um, I think that there are two things going on. On the one hand, she is absolutely using the church to make herself feel better. Uh, She was afraid to sleep through the time for matins. She has clung, she's clinging to this new framework by which to make herself good. And she does eventually say that. She says, I was bad before and now I'm good. And 
obviously that's not how life works. Uh, you can't just turn the page and be, be done with it. But it does say when the doctor comes to examine her after she's been preparing for this communion um, and does so, attends the communion, it says, the doctor says this last medicine, he means his own powders because he thinks that this is what has created the change in her. He says this last medicine is very, very good for her. She's quite refreshed. And uh, that medicine is not the powders, it's the church. Yeah. And, well, and specifically repentance, right? R- repentance. Mm-hmm. The yeah. medicine of repentance has been good for her. And I, I take that as as a value judgment from the text on what has just happened. That even though it's tinged with the ugliness of her own self-justification project, it has ultimately been good for her. I like that reading. Megan, what do you think? I do like that reading. Um, I noticed also in her moment in the church during communion when she's praying that prayer of repentance, Tolstoy's circling back to the conversation about reason and emotion. She she acknowledges kind of like, I think it was like Pierre, might have been like Andre, that she can't understand God and all of his purposes, but she just, she she feels, she feels and follows him. She feels repentant and so goes that way. Let me find the little section. Um when she understood them, her personal feeling with its nuances joined with her prayer. When she did not, did not understand, the sweeter it was for her to think that the wish to understand everything was pride, that it was impossible to understand everything, that she only had to believe and give herself to God, who in those moments she felt, again, emphasis on emotion, was guiding her soul. She crossed herself, bowed, and when she did not understand, only asked God in horror at her own vileness to forgive her for everything, everything, and to have mercy on her. I wonder, because I agree with you that this is a refreshing, the result of this prayer and this moment and this de-emphasis on understanding, but true repentance in her heart, I think, is that she felt calm and the burden lifts from her life. But then the passage ends with circling back to the countess who emphasizes luck. She talks to the doctor who says this this works and it refreshed her and this is very, very good medicine. The countess looked at her nails spat on them a little for luck and went back to the drawing room with a cheerful face, which just puts the whole scene into stark relief. Are we supposed to equate faith with superstition or are we supposed to be as unburdened and calm as Natasha is after this refreshing medicine? I wasn't sure how to end it. I don't know either. Even Natasha can't sustain that because even as she feels that calm, she takes it and makes it a new law for herself, right? She yep. experienced a new feeling of the possibility of correcting her vices and the possibility of a new pure life and happiness. Well, that is a direct uh, echoing of Pierre, like you were saying before, his yeah. experience with masonry. She's taking this thing that has given her some relief and decided that this is going to be the new end-all, be-all uh, solution for her life. Right. Yeah, so in the next section, we, we head into... Yet another aspect of the religion question, and it's the religion as it as it relates to the state. Um, we we move forward in time to the beginning of July, and on July the eleventh, they attend a liturgy at the Razumovskys. I cannot make this stuff up. The Razumovskys <laughs> house chapel, and it's a hot day. And in order to get there, uh, Natasha and her family have to walk through a big crowd, and all of the old aspects of Natasha's presence in a room come back around, but altered and changed 
by the fact that everybody knows what she has done. And it causes a new paroxysm of guilt and this sense of being judged and draws out of her the impulse to judge other people herself. And she gets all wrapped around the axle again immediately. Suddenly, hearing the sounds of the service, she was horrified at her own vileness, horrified that the former purity was again lost to her. So I think you're right that we can't take it as a, uh, this change happened and now we've moved on in some sort of sense of spiritual progress. It's just like in Pierre's case. We're looking for something that, at least yet, we can't have, according to Tolstoy. Did you guys notice, I don't know what to make of this, but did you notice that her line repeats that thought that she had when she was pure before her fall? She looks at herself in the mirror and she says, here I am and my best years are going by for nothing, for nobody. Right. right. <laughs> and it happens again here in this moment. I'm beautiful and I'm young and I know that I'm good now and I was bad before, but I'm good and I know it. She's marking her change, right? Her transformation. But then the line comes back again, exactly the same as before. My best years are going by for nothing, for nobody. She's just as young in this way as she was before. And I think it emphasizes thematically that the heart of her personhood is the same. Just like with Pierre, this attempt to completely remake herself is not going to work. There's an inherent Natasha in there. There's a Natasha-ness. <laughs> youthful and, you know, is going to grow up one day per day and that we can smile and nod at despite all of her efforts. Maybe we don't despair as much as she does in this moment. Right. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. That's very balanced reading. Yeah. But I do think, and back to something Emily was saying a second ago, this is a really nuanced question that we're getting about the intersection of religion and some of these other things, like, for example, superstition. So the first instance of religion and prayer that we get is bracketed with, she spat on them a little for luck and went back to the drawing room with a cheerful face, right? So there's at least a suggestion of superstition. That gets way stronger the next go round. Because the next experience they have in church, as I mentioned, they spend all of their time praying for the motherland or for the fatherland. It's not the motherland in Russia. The fatherland, (laughs) right? The mothership. The mothership. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's pretty good. Okay, so they spend all their time praying for the fatherland. And to my mind, maybe you guys have a different sense of this. To my mind, Tolstoy's landed on pretty thick. Um, He's equating in the minds of these characters statism with faith well and i'm yes. i don't know how hold on i'll let you you go first emily but i want to finish the thought first then once we get through equating statism with faith and there's even a line that says um natasha asked god with that tenderness and softness with which her heart was overflowing but she did not understand very well what she was asking of god in this prayer one gets the sense that Tolstoy may be saying that about the whole room And then the very next chapter is Pierre and numerology. So let's talk about blowing up that bracket of superstition and setting it next to religion and saying, "Uh, uh," right? I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of that going on here. So change my mind because I don't want to think this of Tolstoy. And and I agree in principle with Emily's note that, um, that he's giving us a nuanced picture. And so I think it's too simplistic to say he puts religion and superstition next to each other. Therefore, he must think they're the same. I told Emily she could go first. Megan, if you're coming as brief, go ahead. Well, I don't know that it's brief, but it's a response directly to what you're saying here. I think Tolstoy is giving a more nuanced reading than that, but only slightly. I think you're right. I think he wants us to be having the conversation, the dialogue in our Uh own minds as we read along with this big, long nationalistic prayer. 
Natasha is even having the conversation. She's thinking, well, a minute ago, the Bible verse told us to pray for our enemies, but now we're praying that God would smite them at the same time. (laughs) And in my mind, it's the same enemy. And so I'm not quite sure what to do with that. The line says she could not pray about trampling her enemies under her feet when a few moments before she had wished to have more of them so as to love them and pray for them. But she also could not doubt the rightness of the kneeling prayer that was being read. In other words, we're between a rock and a hard place here. It's not that we don't love our nation and our sovereign, but do we worship him or do we worship God? And I think Tolstoy is is intentionally, it's, he seems pretty overtly to put that conversation on the table, which I think means that it, it is a nuanced reading. He isn't trying to indoctrinate us one way or the other. Okay, so Emily, make sense of this for us. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to make sense of it, but I want to add something, which is that I see in the service a it's not just Christianity qua Christianity versus statism. There seems to be uh, uh, we're back to that essential Russian spirit. And he seems to be folding Orthodox faith into that. Um, hmm. When the priest prays, he begins in that clear, unostentatious and meek voice in which only clergy reading in Slavonic read and which affects the Russian heart so irresistibly. Mm-hmm. So there is a Russian faith, which seems to be uh, something that uh, calls out to the Russian identity and, and anchors them uh, and roots them in that identity and then that's contrasted to this misuse or, I don't know, it's it's the great man manipulating that faith for his own purposes, right? This, this prayer has been passed down from the sovereign and his council and being the church is being forced to read it out loud. So I see two, I, I don't know that there, um, I don't know that that all can be wrapped together in the same bundle of faith in his conversation. I think there are two things going on here that there's an essential Russian faith and then just like everyone else has been misusing things for their own justification project here, the sovereign is using his own church to justify himself. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's a great note um, that it's, yeah, I agree. I'm not going to restate it. I think it was stated perfectly. I think there's a yet one more level though of complexity in that um, it isn't only that the sovereign is using the church uh, for his own ends. That's certainly true. The prayer that he's written says calls Russia Jerusalem for Pete's sake. We are Israel now. We Russians are Israel. We are the chosen people of God and, <laughs> and therefore our cause is just. Oh, that's quite a claim, right? So right. that's for sure happening. But then also... There's a line that says this, Lord, our God, in whom we believe and and place our trust, disgrace us not in our hope of thy mercy, make a sign for the good so that those who hate us and our orthodox faith with a capital O may be put to shame and perish and let all nations know that thy name is the Lord and we are thy people. So there's not just statism, there's also um, denominationally fueled, um, what, what do you even call that? Partialism. I, I don't know. Well, I wonder if that can be put into context, though, when we think about the fact that Napoleon was an Enlightenment agnostic. Right. That he he went around conquering nations and his way of making good with the nation that he conquered was to pretend that he bought into that faith when he went 
um, into the East. He pretended to uh, adopt the Muslim faith, right? Like he just, he didn't care. And so it was a rationalistic, atheistic project. And that is coming up against a, a land that is deeply rooted in faith. And so, yes, there's a, a statist uh, insular issue with that. But I also can see Tolstoy when he's talking about the Napoleonic Wars using that saying, look, th- this this country is grounded um, in its traditions and in its identity. And it's being attacked by someone who wanted to to reorganize the world in his own image and had nothing. He, he didn't look to anything outside of himself for grounding. Man, I, I need to chew on that for a while. So in your mind, then, Tolstoy is elevating the kind of almost childlike commitment to a faith that binds Russia together in, a, in one community with one mind, one heart, and one voice in the face of agnosticism. In the person of Natasha, maybe. Yeah, me too. I really... I want to make a note of that and keep and keep looking for it because that would that would help me a bit against the cynicism. It would paint the cynicism as a gentle, um, as a gentle chuckle at all of our foibles and Tolstoy joining us in it rather than pointing it out from the outside and shaking his finger at his characters. And I like that. I'd prefer to read that. Every time we see him referencing Russia and the nature of the Russian and drawing them together as a community, Natasha is always at the heart of it. And I think that it's most often we're seeing that in a good light. So whatever leaves us with a more compassionate reading of Natasha, I'm all for. Particularly because the beginning of this particular excuse me, particular passage with Natasha, she thinks of Atradno and Christmas time at Atradno and that hunting scene and the the essence of Russia so emphasized in that moment comes back to her right before she goes into the church. And I think that uh, I like Emily's reading. I think it's consistent with all the imagery that he's using there. That was really good. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that very much. Thank you, Emily. Um, it was confusing. I'm not going to lie to you guys and, or to the listeners. It was confusing to me to have religion and superstition slapped so closely next to one another, especially with the, the crazy nationalism and the, we are Jerusalem stuff. But I think, I think that helps. I think I know better what's going on. Well, maybe part of the answer, moving to the next chapter, is that Natasha's faith, as Megan was pointing out, is an emotional experience. It's a felt experience. Right. And Pierre's superstition here is mental gymnastics. Yeah. So I do want to I do want to jump into chapter. Roman numerals are hard, folks. Nineteen. <laughs> Nineteen. I want to jump into chapter 19 and I want to walk you guys through through Pierre's mindset, because I think there's a particular moment where he jumps from the particular to the universal and it's subtle and it happens really fast and is so accurate. And I don't I don't know how accurate it is to um, to the to the natively female mindset, but dudes but I do this all (laughs) the time. So this was this this one really kind of caught me out. So we open this and Pierre is remembering his love for Natasha. He's remembering the moment where he confessed his love to her and then saw the comet and the the feeling of imminence that he had, right? There is something about to happen. Change is coming. Now, we as readers know, correct me if I'm wrong, that change has to do with 
falling in love with the right woman, right? He's falling in love with Natasha. He's devoted to her in a, in a pure and selfless way. And that is the change that is coming. That's the kind of change that's going to sink into his heart and change him as a man. Now, right about the middle of this page, we get this line. Whatever vileness of life presented itself to him, he said to himself, well, let so-and-so steal from the state in the czar. And the state in the czar confer honors on him. But yesterday, she smiled at me and asked me to come. And I love her. And no one will ever know it. Okay, good. Beautiful. So far, the reader and Pierre agree on what's really going on here. And then... It says, Pierre still went into society, still drank as much and led the same idle and dissipated life. Because besides the hours he spent at the Rostovs, he had the rest of the time to spend. <laughs> and the habits and acquaintances he had acquired in Moscow drew him irresistibly to the life he was caught up in. Okay, so this happens always, right? We, we enter this new plane of existence. This new purity descends upon us. This has happened to Natasha. We just saw it. And then a sight of self mucks it all up. And we grow obsessed with change being felt in our activities. I want to be changed from, from the inside out and I want it all to happen right now. I want my former purity back or I want some new kind of purity back. So there's this, this beatific experience of joy and of the imminence of, of some sort of divine power coming for you. And then when it doesn't happen all at once and you realize you are yourself exactly the same, you get frustrated. This is what happens to Pierre. Now, here's where the shift I'm talking about takes place. Having seen that about himself, having grown disillusioned with this new life he was about to live, he projects that disaffection into the wider world. Because his own crisis of, of self is happening, he assumes catastrophe must be impending elsewhere. And all of a sudden, his internal struggle is the struggle of the world against the Antichrist. I'm not making it up, folks. That's the connection. He literally says, I am, in, I am struggling against myself, but that can't be what's happening. And so instead, the world, the righteous world, is struggling against the Antichrist in Napoleon. And I myself am the savior of it. And this change that I feel is impending will be me combating the Antichrist. He's taken that moment with the comment, and there was a gift to him. Yep. And just like we always do, he's taken the gift, and he's grabbed it with both hands, and he's holding us tight to it as he can and saying this isn't going to be a passing thing i'm going to take this i'm going to make it mine and it's going to stay yep. and it's going to be everything that i can make it into being and i'm going to manipulate it and it's it's mine now right well this this is what i call i wrote at the bottom of my page the quiet assumption that our life is all that is all of these things no matter how great or small relate only to pierre's self and one gets the sense that he can't help that and maybe tolstoy is looking at us and saying neither can you by the way this is being trapped in humanity this is being finite and mortal you assume that everything takes place as a character or an event in your own story now the discussion of numerology aside which is hilarious it is so funny to watch tolstoy so describe the calculations they get around to the number 666 and how you can basically do whatever you want with anything and come up with whatever you want and support whatever you want with it. It's completely ludicrous. That all aside, I think we're seeing a very true thing about human nature in Pierre. Well, I do think we're supposed to think it's funny, but it, co it goes back to his conversation about causes, right? We can decide what we will. We will, we will go to any lengths to 
establish meaning and significance we can get our minds around for the events going on around us. And this is another instance where Pierre is basically looking for something to hang all of the world's events on or his own personal struggles, something to explain it. And he will go to ridiculous lengths to do so. And I think we're supposed to laugh at him, but at the same time identify with him. It's always gentle with Tolstoy and Pierre. He sees himself in him, I think. But here's the best part. This discovery excited him. He did not know how, by what connection he was bound up with that great event which had been predicted in the apocalypse, but he did not doubt that connection for a moment. <laughs> I have in my margin, really? <laughs> no, 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 don't he stop, re- don't stop reading oh, there. I won't. I won't. The next sentence is the best. <laughs> he says, his love for Miss Rostov, the Antichrist, Napoleon's invasion, the comet, 666, l'empereur Napoleon, and le russe Bezukhov, all that together must ripen, burst and lead him out of that spellbound, worthless world of Moscow habits in which he felt himself imprisoned and bring him to a great deed and great happiness. Okay, let's interpret for just a second. So this list exists solely to make Pierre <laughs> to give his life less meaning. dissolute. No, it's more specific than that. To make it so that he stops drinking and idly messing around. That's literally the, the, the impact of all of it. That it's going to drag him out of his habits. Okay, don't you just hear... It's an hear... apocalyptic salvation for him yeah. specifically. Don't That's you just he hear Tolstoy criticizing, um, and again with gentleness and, and wryness perhaps, and maybe even in himself, but criticizing the fundamental assumption that, um, that God and religion and spirituality exists only to form the moral habits of a person, right? That all of this exists, the whole world depends... On you acting well, on you not getting drunk, on you not being a playboy. That's what the world depends on. I can see him standing there and going, really? It does? That's super interesting. How did you become the most important person on the planet? How did you become the opposer of the Antichrist? That's so fun for you that you're that important. That kind of dose of humility might be good for, well, I know it's good for me to swallow, (laughs) right? And Pierre is, he's, it's again, it's manipulating what has been ordained, trying to use it, make himself God in essence, in the way that you're saying. And, and that's reflected in what he's doing here. He's, he is manipulating numbers which have been designed and ordained by God to have the meaning that he wants them to have. He's manipulating rules of grammar. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that he arrives at this conclusion is by literally breaking the rules of grammar. (laughs) He removes the letter from his name so that it's misspelling his own name. name. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know guys, he might have a point because did you notice what page this discussion? I was just gonna say I think we have our translators and the people that produced this physical copy to thank for the fact that this chapter ends on the page six six six. I think that is so funny. Oh my word. Whew. But I think Tolstoy, again, with the truth stick, just swinging as hard as he can, at the end of our next page, it talks about um, all of this assumption on Pierre's part leads him to inaction instead of action. And so Tolstoy says, dude, if you really believed it all came down to you, maybe you would, I don't know, do something. And instead what Pierre does is refrains from doing anything. 
doesn't enter military service because he's waiting on something dramatic and supernatural to happen. And I can hear Tolstoy saying, dude, why don't you just live? Just live. Do the next thing, how about? Instead of freighting every single moment with this level of psycho significance. I just, I totally agree with you. And what he really does next, the next thing we can mark as his big action in the political realm, at least, is led not by his head, but by a a wild emotional burst of passion for the sovereign. So on the one hand, act, do. And on the other hand, what's it all for? And yet, yes, when he's, hmm, I don't know, because everything after this point in the following chapters seemed to be him being led by his heart, not by his decision to move forward. Because the the next chapter is the one in which he, he takes leave of Natasha. Not because he's trying to be good necessarily, but because he sees that this is unhealthy for all parties involved. It's a felt, a felt decision. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really true. That's a really good point. So let's go into the Rostov's dinner party, because that's sort of our next moment. As always on Sundays, some of the closest Rostov acquaintances were dining, and Pierre comes early so as to catch them alone. And we're about to walk into a room where Pierre is somewhat confused. How do we feel about his decision to abandon this budding friendship with Natasha? Well, I really, I, I, as sad as I was, cheered in my heart when he made that decision because it reaffirms that Pierre is just a, he's a wonderful guy who really does love Natasha in a, in a pure way. We see, we didn't talk about it much in this episode, but at the beginning of our section for today, we watch Natasha and Pierre's budding friendship. And we have another conversation between the two of them where she asks him if Prince Andre would forgive her. And he says, if it were me, there would be nothing to forgive. Um, basically causing her to compare and contrast Andre and himself in her own mind. And she is quick to say, you're the best man that I know. There's no one like you. And though she's not thinking of him in a romantic sense in that moment, because I think we're led to believe she's too young to acknowledge that's what's going on. Pierre knows that that's what's going on, that she's falling in love with him and acknowledging it openly to him and that it's his responsibility as a married man to to keep that from happening. But he's confused and forgets what he's doing because here she is so much the object of his own affection and she's being openly uh, admired. Well, what's the word? She's being openly loving towards him, tender towards him. And for goodness sake, he's got to tear himself away and how can he? Poor man. Brutal. It's really brutal. He's also being told by her family that he's the agent of her healing, right? So there's a sense in which given the the relative lack of medical scientific understanding present in the Russian people, right. he's also been instrumental in bringing Natasha back from the edge of death. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sympathize not only with his own personal struggle, but also with the confusion surrounding the situation for him. Yeah, I, this is not the first time this has happened, but every time Pierre is actually good, that he actually does something noble, it's because it's tied to an individual personal relationship, not an ideal, not any kind of principle, just out of love for individuals. I really like that. I do too. It's true. There's no no idealism or ideology can stand up to Tolstoy's piercing understanding. 
the only thing that really that really endows any of those ideas with significance is the mystery of human connection. But the upshot is he decides not to visit anymore. Right. He decides in his heart he will not visit the Rostovs anymore. One wonders if he'll succeed. <laughs> right. Well, yes, because he doesn't succeed in a lot of other resolutions that he makes. But right. <laughs> we expect to see him pursuing instead the apocalyptic charge. <laughs> oh, no. The 666, right? right? We're, we're expecting to see him forging off in that direction. Mm-hmm. I was also excited to see after almost 700 pages that our reading <laughs> of the the significance of French appears to be justified here. Yes. Oh, it yeah. is now mm-hmm. officially dangerous to be speaking French in Russia, so much so that the nobility are hiring Russian tutors because their children have gone off the tracks and are speaking French more than they speak Russian and they need to be re-educated in the Russian language. Yeah. That's pretty interesting to me. I underlined the same thing. That's a good development, I think, from Tolstoy's perspective. Let's understand who we are as a people and do the things that knit us together as a people because, like we said, human relationship and community is the only thing that lends significance to the world. So in the Russian world, speaking Russian is emblematic of that. There are two things that are that are eminently Russian. One of them is the Russian language, right? And the other is the Russian sovereign, the Russian czar. And I think as much as he's saying, go Russia, there's also this, this picture of the sovereign throwing biscuits to the crowd and the crowd's response to the sovereign's presence that's, that's equal parts inspiring and kind of worrying. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with how that. How did you guys take that? Do you think that this is a image of the swarm life that he talked about at the beginning mm. of this part? Well, it's certainly a swarm, a crushing swarm. It's a crushing swarm, and we're getting it from the bottom sphere. Uh, through Petya's eyes, we're seeing the, the mob, the peasantry, rise uh, in in their fervor, and then from Pierre's eyes, we see it from the top, from the nobility, and in both cases, it it seems to be an instance of this chaos swarm life pushing them towards an end, a historical end. Right. That is actually there's more truth to what the crowd shouts in this moment than they know. They they shout nonsensical things like we will do anything for the sovereign. We will sacrifice our lives. We will give up our city and that will be our salvation. And in the end, historically, giving up Moscow is the thing that saves Russia in this battle. So there's something about the sovereign's presence that does call out true I don't know, true patriotism that might actually be the salvation of Russia. But even so, it seems a little nonsensical. Well, it's just, it's utter chaos. It's utter irrational. I wonder if it exists. Emotionalism. To, to lend us some, con- by contrast, to lend us clarity about the next scene. Because it's a pair, right? We see through Petya's eyes, the whole, um, the experience of the commoner with the sovereign. And it's sort of a let them eat cake moment, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so you see you see that happen. And then we go to the next scene where the noblemen are getting the same treatment. And it's a little more nuanced and it's a little bit more um, personal because the sovereign's dealing with other people in power. But the same effect, which is that regardless of their actual intellectual propositions, regardless of the arguments that they make to one another, which none of them, Tolstoy implies, are really hearing, Right? They're, they're talking for the sake of talking, and they're not paying attention to one another's actual ideas. Regardless of all of that, when the sovereign shows up, they willingly sign away all of their peasants as troops. And I, Yeah, I think you know, that's really good. Of passion. 
because they get home and they look up and they say, what did we do? Yeah. Why did I agree to this? They're caught up in something that is utterly non-intellectually guided. They're not acting on on their principles or ideas like you're saying. Did you also notice that Ilya, who is just roasted in this scene, <laughs> he, he agrees with everybody. He's the heart and soul of this meeting because mostly he's just so affirming. You say something <laughs> stupid and he thinks you're so smart. And the other guy directly contradicts you and he agrees with him too. And it's just like, wow, everybody's awesome. And then the sovereign speaks and Ilya hears nothing. He, he had heard nothing, but understood it all in his own way. And I have that underlined and there's a question mark next to it. What is his own way? Is it something we're supposed to mock? Or is it the very thing that Tolstoy is handing to us and saying this, this is the purpose of the sovereign, is to get to you in this way, to inspire that part of you that has nothing to do with your mind and your understanding, but to call out of you an emotional response and a deep inspiration in patriotism. I think maybe even though he's being roasted, Ilya is everyone in this moment. Yeah, I, I think you might be right. And that sort of gets to the question I was going to ask about the difference between Pierre's way of taking the, uh, the what do they call it, the manifesto, and the way that the old men in the room take the manifesto. So the sovereign has been very delicate in the way that he's presented this to the people. He's coming to the noblemen and he's he is asking for their counsel. He's coming to consult with the noblemen about what is best to be done. And Pierre without really knowing why, takes that as legitimate and decides to try and have an opinion and to suggest to the rest of the room that counsel is what's necessary. We shouldn't interact with the sovereign as though we have nothing to say to him. And the old men in the room, Ilya included, ignore altogether the request for counsel and say it is actually for the sovereign and for powers of way above our heads to decide what's best to be done. All we're here to do is offer our unfailing support and uncritical support. I that's It's hard to give a judgment on that because as I think reading as an American, it's easy to say, well, yes, Pierre, you should stand up for your rights and you are a reasonable individual, except for his basis for wanting to do that is because he was caught up in the spirit of the French Revolution. Right. And the French Revolution is obviously famously different than the American Revolution in that it was a mob who decided to overturn all sense of reason and make themselves make themselves the sovereign. And if that is the spirit in which Pierre is thinking this, then that's problematic. Also, if if he's referencing the spirit of the French Revolution and France is directly the the opposite of Russia in our novel, it's the conflict. They're head to head. I don't think we're supposed to see it as a positive thing for Pierre to be caught up in the spirit of his rivals. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But then the words of the ancient senator that Pierre takes issue with are called correctness and narrowness of view being thrust into the task facing the nobility. Um, and that's why Pierre stops him. So there's a sense in which Tolstoy seems to have a foot in Pierre's camp and a foot in the nobility's camp. He seems to be saying, on the one hand, Pierre is right. Um, this sort of blind nationalism isn't isn't good. On the other hand, Pierre is wrong because in order for a nation to sustain itself, blind nationalism is necessary. Maybe this is another instance of Tolstoy just giving us the whole world on a platter and saying, hey, look, mm -hmm. look, look how well I've described all the things that are. 
Hmm. Well, and it fits into the conversation we were having about the church and that there are there's something beneficial when you look that that's um, it's beneficial. But when you look at it, it it breaks down. Right. Uh, and really, it's most effective use takes place when you're not examining it or analyzing it so much, but you're being caught up in the spirit of it, which is problematic, but effective. Well, here's the other thing that he does, again, with the broadness of his comments, he drags in the personalities of all of these nobles. It's not just how are we all relating to these big ideas. It's also, Pierre knows this guy to be a cheater, a cheating card player. This dude who is articulating the purity of his views about the sovereign is kind of a jerk in private. How do we deal with that? Right? I mean, it's almost like he's suggesting, look, man, that kind of examination that Emily's talking about, under which all of these big idealistic notions break down, maybe that's just not worthwhile. Maybe that kind of examination isn't worthwhile. Maybe we should take it as our part as human beings to participate in this warm life. Because, after all, he says at one point, a crowd needs to have a tangible object of love and a tangible object of hatred. He says that without censure, just as a, a fact, in this swarm life, here's the fact. A crowd needs these two things. Humanity needs something to pin all of their hopes and love on and something to despise and censure because they're making sense of things. He does such a beautiful job of, of thinking about human life from the perspective of collective life and individual life and those are two very different things in the way that he draws them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the the one thing I would add, and this is this is not a firm statement of I think this is happening, but it's a question. He does at this point could be the life, the period of life for our main characters, but he does spend most of his time describing the personal and the specific in his description of immature characters who have yet to grow to adulthood. And... Um, it's hard for me not to see that as this kind of individualistic thinking can't survive the process of maturity. Except for the personal, maybe when it's self-focused. But again, like we said before, the healthiest a character can be is when it is specific and individual, but it's directed toward another person. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. That may be you let the swarm life be and it's going to play out as it's going to play out where you matter is in your sphere and what's been given to you in your little lot of land. Wow. Well, thank you both for your insights. We covered a lot of territory just then, a lot of territory, and I'm proud of us for doing so. Um, next week, we'll get together. I'm assuming, Emily, Ozar of the page count, <laughs> that we will be doing roughly five chapters for the beginning of part two. Am I correct? Exactly. Five chapters. You're okay, correct. Yeah. We'll be doing five chapters of volume three, part two for our next discussion. Cannot wait to hear what the two of you think. And you listeners, thank you for joining us so regularly. Um, you should know that there is a Facebook group on which we kick around some of these ideas. And if you have a mind, we would love to hear your thoughts and maybe any questions you can come up with that would be fun to kick around on the show. So, between now and when we hear from you again, thank you for joining us and bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. 
How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.